Welcome to University of Iowa Insights, a monthly audio magazine featuring interviews with some of the world's leading thinkers, researchers, and teachers. In this, the May edition of our program, Nicole Real visits with UI senior Kyle Vint about his experience on the university's small but mighty debate team. Iowa Debate, which celebrates its 150th anniversary this year, captured its fourth national title since 2000 and won its seventh straight district title. Gary Galuzzo speaks with Chris Brochu, Associate Professor of Geoscience, whose investigation into existing fossil collections shows that crocodiles of about two million years ago were more diverse than previously thought. And Ann Kapler talks with Kate Fitzgerald, Iowa's Assistant Director of Residence Life, who shares summer shopping suggestions for students eager to outfit their first residence hall room and provides practical advice for parents preparing for move-in day. Kyle Vint, and I'm a senior here at Iowa, and I'm one of the two senior members on the Iowa debate team this year. So I understand that the UI debate team is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year yep. and that there's a long tradition of success. But tell me a little bit about this history of accomplishments and then also how the team did this season. Sure. The Iowa debate team was actually the first student-run organization at the University of Iowa um, since the year about 1970. The uh, Iowa debate team's success includes winning national championships, having top speakers at the national tournament, um, and that's continued up to this point this year. Uh, for instance, I was part of the first team to ever win four district tournaments in a row, and uh, our freshman and sophomore team of Nat Olson and Ryan Hunt were actually the champions of the freshman-sophomore nationals this year, which was a huge accomplishment. So how many students are on the debate team? Is it is it graduate and undergraduate students? Right now there are about six or seven actual debaters on the team. We actually have a really big recruiting class coming in, about seven kids, which is huge because that doubles our numbers. Only undergraduates are allowed to compete at the tournaments, but we have strong support from the communications department. They give assistance ships to master's and Ph.D. program members that help out with the day-to-day coaching of the debate team. So we have three... Um, three assistants from the communications department and then a law student that also coaches us and then two full-time faculty members that oversee our program. So how do you go to go about preparing and practicing for competitions? It's actually a, a year-long program. We just finished up with the national debate tournament and in about a month the topic for next year will come out and at that point we start researching um, all the different topic areas and preparing our arguments and Throughout the course of the year, we do enough research that we carry around generally about four or five large tubs, the, the giant tubs of evidence that we've produced for our arguments throughout the course of the year. So for every tournament, you're rearranging all of your arguments, practicing, giving the speeches, and doing generic research on the, the topic area that is being debated. So what kinds of careers do debate team members go on to have? I mean, it seems like law would be a natural, and, and what others? The vast majority of debate students that go on to postgraduate studies do do law school, but you also have a lot of people that go and work for political campaigns or um, nonprofit organizations. There's also, a, most of the debate programs around the country are sponsored by the communications departments at those schools, so you have a lot of students that take their knowledge of debate and then go do communications studies programs is a, a really large part of debate, and then they um, also coach debate at those communications studies programs. 
So tell me a little bit about how a competition works for someone who's never been involved with debate. Each debate is about 80 minutes long. So each person gives 13 minutes of speeches and there are two, two teams of two people. And one, one person affirms it, or one team affirms the topic and one team negates the topic. And generally at a tournament, uh, you, can, you can liken it to a basketball season. There are eight debates that are kind of like the regular season. And then the top 32 teams from those eight debates are seeded one through 32, like the NCAA March Madness. And the first seed debates the 32nd seed in single elimination until there's one champion. How does it exactly work once you get to a competition? I mean, do you give, like, each team gives an opening statement and then you go back and forth? Or? Um, one of the weird things about debate is, over the course of time, uh, it was found that to make as many arguments as possible and make as many convincing arguments as possible, you had to speak as, as quickly as possible. So most debaters generally read at about 300 words per minute out loud to the judges. And the way it works is the first affirmative stands up and upholds a topic. So this year would be the first affirmative would give an instance in which the U.S. should decrease its nuclear weapons. And then the negative gives their speeches, and then the, the entire debate resolves around the specific instance. So while the topic is reducing nuclear weapons, the affirmative gets to choose a specific area which it should reduce, and the negative has to respond to those affirmative arguments throughout the course of the debate. And there's um, eight, total, eight total speeches um, in which the teams try and... Uh, beat each other's arguments as sufficiently as possible, as quickly as possible. So 300 words a minute, I mean, how fast does an average person talk in conversation? Uh, about one-fourth to one-fifth that speed. <laughs> wow. Um, and it's, it's really jarring to see it for your first time. I mean, I remember sitting down watching my first debate ever as a freshman in high school, and I didn't ever think it was possible for me to read that fast or think there was any potential for me to read that fast. But Can people uh, even process that? Well, the thing is, after, after eight years, I, I, can, I can do it while writing with one hand and highlighting my evidence with another hand. So the judges have all been part of debate for upwards of 10 years. Some of them have been around the activity for 40 years. So they're all so used to it that they can, they can hear and remember and write down all the information that's occurring in the debate. My name is Chris Brochu, and I'm an associate professor of geoscience at the University of Iowa in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. I'm also a co-author of an article published in the February 24th issue of the journal Public Library of Science that describes a new species of crocodile. Uh, Chris, what evidence do you have, and how did you come by it? Well, my colleagues and I based our conclusions on fossils that were collected over many decades. Uh, some of them were collected in 2007 by a team led by two of the co-authors on the paper, Robert Blumenshine of Rutgers and Jackson and Zhao, who was then at the National Natural History Museum of Tanzania. But other fossils were collected as long ago as the 1930s, and they were kept in museums in Kenya and in the United Kingdom. Now, most of these fossils by themselves are really fragmentary. They're just bits and pieces, and they're not very impressive. But together, they reveal a crocodile that's very different from any of its living relatives. Where were the fossils originally found, and how old are they? Well, the fossils were found in the Olduvai Gorge region of Tanzania in Africa, and they're about two million years old, maybe a little bit less than that. Uh, now, Olduvai Gorge is a famous place. It's also the uh, location of many key discoveries of our early ancestors. What distinguishes the new species from modern crocodiles? Well, it would have been more or less similar in overall shape, 
Uh, it would have been about as large as its living cousin, the Nile crocodile, uh, which can reach lengths of between 18 and 20 feet and weigh up to about a ton. But this one did have some subtle differences. It had very it had uh, small but noticeable horns in the back of the skull, triangular objects behind the eyes. Uh, these weren't antlers or anything like that, but the back of the skull was a little bit fancier than in modern crocs. And now today there are two living species, the Cuban and Siamese crocodiles, that also have horns, uh, but those at Olduvai, the Olduvai crocodile were more prominent, and the Olduvai crocodile was not closely related to either of those two species. It also had a deeper snout, and the nose on this animal opened a little bit to the front, not just directly upward as it would be in a Nile crocodile. Chris, are there any other distinguishing characteristics? The bones of early human relatives have been found in rocks of about the same age in Olduvai Gorge, and some of these show bite marks made by crocodiles. So on that basis, it looks like the crocodiles were eating these human ancestors. Now, what that means is that our ancestors would have been in grave danger if they got too close to the water. In fact, they were probably in even graver danger than we would be because back then they were smaller than we are. So what we have is a horned man-eating crocodile that would have looked more or less like a Nile crocodile except for a deeper snout and, of course, the horns. Uh, the new species, uh, we called it Crocodilus anthropophagus. Anthropophagus literally means eater of people in Greek. In addition to learning that early man would have done well not to get too close to the water, what lesson did you learn from these fossils? Uh, Crocodilus anthropophagus is geologically actually fairly young. It's just under two million years in age. Now, we knew that crocodiles in Africa were more diverse in the past. There would have been more species found in Africa if you go back to five or ten million years ago. But we assumed that their diversity dropped sharply uh, once the Ice Age started, around two million, maybe a little bit older than two million years ago. Now, we now know that ancient croc diversity in Africa remained higher than it is in the present day for longer than we had thought. My name is Kate Fitzgerald. I'm the assistant director of University Housing. What that title means is that basically from the time a student gets their housing assignment till the time they move out of the residence halls in May, me and my staff have everything to do with making sure their stay at Iowa is successful, with the exception of food service. Give me some basic statistics about the University of Iowa. How many residence halls are here, and what percentage of students choose to live in them? We have 10 residence halls at the University of Iowa. Nine of those residence halls house our first-year students. We house about 95% of all the incoming first-year class. In addition, we house some upper-class students for a total of 5,600 beds. One of the benefits of living in the residence halls is that we have students and staff available to help students be successful, from our tutoring program in the residence halls to the life development skill programs that the RAs present. We have services 24 hours a day to help the students make that transition from living at home to living on their own. What can students and their parents do now to begin preparing to move to college? One of the first things that students should do is contact their roommate as soon as they get their housing assignment from us. So have a, either a phone conversation or email conversation with them. Don't just trust it to Facebook. Talk about the living situation in the room. Second most important thing to do is check your insurance policy. Make sure that your parents' homeowners or renters' insurance is going to cover their student belongings while they're away at college. What would you say are the essentials for incoming students? 
Students will tell you that the most important thing that they need for campus is a computer. All the residence halls will be wireless in fall of 2010, so having wireless capability on that computer so that they can wander is important. One of the other things is that most students live on a floor where the bathroom is a shared shower area in the middle of the hallway. So making sure that they have a caddy to bring their soap and um, other essentials in with them is important. In addition, some flip-flops and or a robe um, are good things to have as well. One of the things that students don't think about is bringing a fan with them. Even though most of our rooms are air conditioned, fans help to circulate the air in the residence hall room as well as serve as great white noise to keep out the wandering of their neighbors up and down the hallway in the middle of the night. One of the other things that students really seem to appreciate are photos, especially of family as well as the family pets so that they can have those in their room to have that feeling of home while they're away at college. Are there any items that students should be sure to discuss with their roommate before going out to buy? Definitely. Um, students should really talk to their roommate about things like extra seating in the room. If they're going to bring a futon or a recliner chair, oftentimes a room only has room for one of these items, so make sure you're talking to each other. Additionally, most rooms only need one TV, one microwave oven, and by policy you're restricted to having only one refrigerator, so make sure you're talking with each other. A move-in day is still a couple of months away, but what tips do you have for students and their families to help that day go as smoothly as possible? One of the most important things I can say is think about what you're packing prior to packing it. Um, we do have some carts available, um, however things need to be sturdy on that cart, so making sure you're packing things in boxes or plastic tubs. In addition, think about how you're packing your vehicle. Last thing in is the first thing out, so if you're bringing a carpet for a floor, that should be the last thing on top of the car instead of the thing on the bottom of the pile. Also, it would be helpful for students and their families to bring an extra dolly or some sort of cart with them. Although we have some available, they're very limited on busy move-in days. The third thing is realizing that um, students are nervous that day, and even if they don't necessarily show it, practicing patience with them or patience with a line in an elevator, and realizing to not make, even though parents, you're going to be sad that you're leaving your son or daughter with us for a while, they're also anxious and judging everything that's going on around them, so making sure that you're making them feel comfortable first. This podcast was produced by the University of Iowa Office of University Relations. For more information on our podcasts or to subscribe, visit us at news.uiowa.edu.